This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. I am so excited today to have Abel James. He's a New York Times bestselling author, musician, and creator of the hit podcast, Fat Burning Man, which if you're not a listener of, you should jump on it immediately. It's so well done. His new book and audiobook entitled Designer Babies Still Get Scabies, a number one international bestseller in humor, is available now. Welcome, Abel. It's so nice to have you this morning. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to have some fun. Absolutely. So, you know, before we started recording, we were kind of talking a bit about, you know, life experiences and how that will kind of guide our perspectives. And, and certainly as someone in the last 18 months who went through their own little healthcare hiccup, I know you were kind of touching on and alluding to the experiences you and your wife had. So I, I'd love to kind of start there and we'll kind of pivot as we go. What actually happened? You mentioned carbon monoxide poisoning, and I'd love to hear more about what happened there. Yeah, it's really creepy. And to be honest, I wasn't as informed as I should have been before it all happened to us. But this was about a year ago, my wife and I who have been working in the field of health for, you know, mm -hmm. 10 plus years at this point. So it's not only a part of our identity and everything who makes, you know, this is what we do with our time. This is what I've, we've dedicated our lives to. So it was really interesting to have that taken away and heartbreaking sure. for us. But anyway, we were staying at a rental house and not a cheap one in Colorado. And over the course of a few days, it was getting worse and worse where mm -hmm. I just felt like I couldn't get out of bed. I, my head wasn't quite right. And on top of that, I had a number of infections, mm -hmm. basically just kind of like cuts that would normally heal up fine. You know, you just kind of ding your finger, your wrist or whatever, or your leg, and they were just getting worse and worse. And then I got a really bad temperature. And I've always been allergic since I was an infant to almost every single antibiotic out there. So infections are really dangerous to begin sure. with. And we didn't know what was happening, but at least not right away <laughs> by law. And we were under the understanding that this house had carbon monoxide detectors in the place where it legally should have. It did not. And when we tried to address it, the people who you know were running the place mm -hmm. were antagonistic and, you know, no. Anyway, that was layered on top of all of this. But what happened was, and I would encourage everyone going into heating season mm -hmm. to look into this in all of your vehicles, in all of your houses, and especially close to sleeping areas, make sure that you do have some sort of carbon monoxide detector in addition to the smoke detector. These days, many of them come in the same you know, mm -hmm. container. They kind of look the same, but make sure that you're monitoring for carbon monoxide because if you're not, it's a odorless invisible gas that's completely toxic to our system and it displaces oxygen and it usually comes from basically burning fuel inefficiently mm -hmm. or improperly or having it basically have some sort of error in the exhaust system such mm -hmm. that you'd be breathing it in because you should never breathe this in right, it right. Is that bad and what happened at this place where we were staying is the furnace was not you know, up to snuff, let's say. And so it wasn't running on full power. It was being inefficient. It had broken down a few times. We lost hot water. That was one of the things that kind of set it off. And we knew something was going on. And, and that's how we tracked it down, that the mm -hmm. furnace was the problem. So anyway, it was off-gassing all of this carbon monoxide throughout the entire house. And when we later checked it, it was extremely dangerous in the basement, 
in the first level by the kitchen and upstairs where we were sleeping. So my wife, myself, and our dog, we all had serious symptoms and almost couldn't get up. And oh once goodness. we were able to figure out what it was and get out of there, it took a while to recover, but it was obvious that the problem was inside of that house in some mm -hmm. way. This can happen in people's vehicles, you know, boats, RVs. So if you're burning any gas, if you're cooking with mm -hmm. propane, just make sure that you have these protectors around and detectors and, and smoke. We have all sorts of gadgets now where we're My monitoring house. air quality and radon and like every gas we can because it really became an obsession and coming back from it though was mm -hmm. really one of the most humbling things ever. And I'd be happy to go in whatever direction you'd like. Yeah, no, I would love for you to because I think when you've always been a healthy person, when you go through a health crisis, it is profoundly humbling. And I always feel like in many ways, it's a gift. Yeah. You know, if there are things that you didn't appreciate enough before, suddenly you do. I know for myself, when I went through that 13 days being in the hospital, most of which I was completely unaware of what was going on. And, and certainly when I was aware, I knew I was pretty sick. When I came out, I kept saying, I'm never going to be afraid. I'm going to you know, take every leap of faith. I am going to dream big. I'm an introvert by nature. Yeah. And so for me, sometimes I would make excuses. Well, I don't really want to do that. And I'm like, no, now you're going to do it. And you're going to do it with enthusiasm. So coming from that, I mean, and what an almost tragedy. I'm so grateful that you and your wife and your dog were able to you know, be rehabilitated. But how long did it actually take you to get back to some degree of normalcy? Because I think if I recall from some of your podcasts, it really sounds like you were debilitated for a long period of time. Months, but... It was really at a year where mm -hmm. I felt like, okay, I'm pretty much back now. I'm still not 100%, to be honest. With the wildfire smoke coming through, as it is pretty much the whole West, mm -hmm. that will flare up some of our symptoms again, where this never used to happen to me, mm -hmm. but I have this intense spine pain and intense neck pain. And after the poisoning, I couldn't move my head without pain to the left or the right for months, for many months. When I tried to play guitar and I've been a career musician for mm -hmm. like 30 years now, almost, I couldn't play like wow. I play for a long time. And then also, you know, when you're in good physical shape and training, not just, you know, with what you're doing athletically, but also your skills like playing mm -hmm. music, you will become deconditioned the longer mm -hmm. that you can't do that. So if you're bedridden, or if you can't move, you can't work out, if you're mm -hmm. injured, all these things, you're going to <laughs> go backwards. And yeah. for people who like us, I think, and a lot of the people who are listening, it's like, you're always trying to go forwards. And if yeah. you're not going forward, then it feels very uncomfortable. And one of the biggest things that I missed and that my wife missed as well was we couldn't work. We couldn't help the people who we normally mm -hmm. do. And so we had to let everyone down is what it felt like as we were just like sure. crushed ourselves. And yeah. so that was really, really hard. And then also we had to find a new place. So we were basically, you know, just going from one place to another for many months, trying to figure out what do we do now? Where do we move our stuff? And that was really tough from a lifestyle perspective. And more than anything else, though, it's we kind of like aged 40 or 50 years. We were brought like to the edge of death for a while there. And then it took us time to kind of start training again and start mm -hmm. bringing our business back and, and finding a place to live and all that. Yeah. And so I come back with so much more empathy than I ever had before because I've put on a few pounds. I've been sick. Mm -hmm. I've been on medications and various mm -hmm. things like that, but I have never 
been, you know, on what I thought might be my deathbed, never mm -hmm. knowing if you'd be able to come back from that. And so for many people, they have been there and that's why they come to health. And that's why they're just like, oh, diet does matter. Mm -hmm. what, what should I eat? What, how should yeah. I train? And it's unfortunate to some degree that it takes that for a lot of people. But I think for those practitioners out there who have gone through something like that, they know the value of it, especially once you're on the other end. So it's really one thing that I learned, and to your point, we shouldn't be afraid of it necessarily. Mm -hmm. This is something that we did everything that we could to prevent it, knowing what we knew at the time. We've mm -hmm. gone through it now. And, and now, yes, I'm to some degree, not 100%, but like to some degree thankful that these things happen. And I also, you know, it definitely supercharged my spiritual beliefs that this isn't our first rodeo. This isn't like our physical body here even if you're completely taken out, there's still a lot going on. Even if your brain isn't really working anymore because right. you're poisoned and it doesn't have oxygen, which is that's from a, you know, carbon monoxide essentially starves your body of oxygen. Mm -hmm. So coming back from it is like a hard, for me, it was like coming back from a really hardcore concussion. That was the closest that I'd ever yeah. come to that, but totally brutal. And a lot of things are really brutal. So if you get really bad pneumonia, if you get meningitis, if you get a concussion, if you get poisoned by anything, it really manifests. That's another thing I learned in a very similar way where yeah. you just feel like death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it doesn't really matter what kind of death you feel like if you're in that state. So it's actually kind of a bonding thing for people who have been there. You know mm -hmm. what that feels like. Absolutely. Well, last September I was out in LA and I was doing some TV work and there were probably four or five guests on the show and I don't know how it came up. It might've been one of my team just happened to be there. She lives close to LA and the whole ruptured septic appendix discussion came up. And one of the guests looked at me and said, Oh my God, you went through that. He goes, I have so much respect for my appendix after what I went through. And I said, I had zero idea. I never thought about my appendix. Right. I used to call it this vestigial organ. That's not necessary. Well, one vestigial organ that's not necessary in quotation marks almost killed me. And yeah. so one of the things I'm so grateful for, and I'm sure you and your wife are as well, is that the quality of my health before I got sick was one of the reasons why I didn't die. And my surgeon right. said that to me over and over and over again, because I am now closer to 50 than I am 40. And she kept saying, if you were the average 47-year-old, you probably, if you didn't die, you definitely would not be where you are today. And so yes. being so grateful that we take such good care of ourselves, because I do believe inherently that that is what allows us to kind of pull through those experiences. And then also, you know, I used to call it, I lost 15 pounds in the hospital. I'm not a big person. So when I came in, I looked pretty awful on top of being sick. And so trying to explain to people that, you know, once I was able, many months later, once I could get back to intermittent fasting, once I could get back to lifting all this mitochondrial memory, it's like our bodies are smart enough that yeah. once we start getting back to a place where we're healing, our bodies will heal faster because we've taken such good care of ourselves. But it's probably a good time to kind of pivot. So I want to hear more about what brought you to the health and wellness space. I love your story. I mean, I actually really spent a lot of time preparing for this interview because you're such an interesting individual. I knew you grew up in New England, but how did you get from New England going to college up there, you know, through this health and wellness journey out to Colorado? So walk us through that. I think it's a really interesting story. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I became very sick at a young age mm -hmm. and allergic to antibiotics. So my mom, who is also a nurse, yeah, she was just a nurse at that time. Mm -hmm. She went on to study 
herbs and wild crafting and all these alternative healing methods for not just me, but my other brothers who were also allergic to a lot of the traditional drugs in Western medicine, which, you know, oddly enough, she was working in the ER and she's working mm -hmm. very much in the Western system. And then, you know, she's going out into the woods and gathering mushrooms and herbs and making tinctures it. and bombs and all this. So anyway, that's kind of the way that I was raised. And it wasn't particularly unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people just kind of came from that culture, especially growing up in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire back then. And then, of course, you know, I had to rebel against that as a teenager. And as I became my, own, you know, I remember having a conversation with my mom when I started to get zits. I'm just like, I need to go get Clearasil. I saw a commercial for it or whatever. And she's just like, it's chemicals. It's all toxic. It's going to make the problem worse or whatever. And so I ignored my mom, not just in that way, but also in the whole like philosophy of holistic healing mm -hmm. that, you know, I was very well versed in growing up in it. But then, of course, you know, so I went to school in New Hampshire, went to high school in New Hampshire, and then I went to Dartmouth, which is also in New Hampshire. So I spent a lot of time up there in the Northeast, and I couldn't wait to get out. And when I did, that's when I took a job to pay off my loans in Washington, D.C., and I got great health insurance for the first time in my life in this very Western system. And so I decided to double down on it. And I was going in every week or two weeks, getting my blood drawn, mm -hmm. urine taken and analyzed, and basically talked to the doctor about how do I prevent these things in mm -hmm. my family, this history of high blood pressure and maybe heart problems or mm -hmm. stroke and, and various things. How do I prevent this? in myself because i'm you know just barely in my early 20s mm -hmm. and like a go-getter and i want to get it done so anyway after following his advice to stay away from dietary cholesterol eat plenty of whole grains make sure you keep your fat as low as possible and and basically eat less exercise more mm -hmm. even though i had been you know an athlete before that for most of my life i'm just like all right let's give this a shot and over the course of about 12 or 18 months i put on 25 30 pounds my triglycerides shot way up i couldn't control blood sugar my thyroid started having problems my body temperature couldn't regulate itself mm -hmm. the way that it's supposed to i started getting puffy and really pale and all of that and long story short i came home one night and lost everything in an apartment fire and when that happened i looked at myself in the mirror and i saw for the first time really the results of what those last 18 mm -hmm. months had done to me and i felt like i was middle-aged i had almost no energy i was sleepy all the time and i'm just like man you got some problems here mm -hmm. the rest of your life is a mess let's at least make you a project and so mm -hmm. I did that. I went <laughs> basically ignored the advice that seemed like it wasn't working for me, which is what I had implemented from my doctor and the running magazines and just kind of popular culture in general. Mm -hmm. And I went deep into the research on body transformation, physiology, mm -hmm. looking into cyclic ketogenic diets, looking into weird bodybuilding circles, <laughs> not with drugs or anything like that, but just looking at people who it's like, okay, this guy's in his 60s. And he has incredible athleticism mm -hmm. and, you know, his body composition is on point. This other person got down to 3% body fat. And I just geeked out on that for a few months, experimented on myself and combined it with kind of like the whole food nutrition, holistic approach mm -hmm. to health that I'd learned from my mom. And within, you know, just a month or two, all of the extra weight came off. I was back to my fighting weight. I felt better than ever, full of energy. And I, I was so mad that following that advice, mm -hmm. 
so well for my doctor had made me sicker and fatter than all my friends because I was trying so hard. Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume Element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. But as soon as I switched to following advice that was more suitable to me and my goals at the time, it was relatively straightforward to get exactly the results that I wanted. And so after that, there was really no turning back where I'm just so excited about the world of health. And I realize how important it is, like going back to our conversation before health is a survival skill. If you don't have your health, and I get the same thing too. Some doctors who looked at us after we were poisoned by carbon monoxide, they're just like, you would have died mm -hmm. if you weren't already in excellent shape. Exactly the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, if you're talking about any sort of infection or any sort of disease, you prevent it by being in shape for the most part. Mm -hmm. And if you are in shape, when you do get clobbered by something, you have a much better chance of surviving. And so once I kind of got a good taste of that myself and started helping other people as well, it just became an area of my life where I realized I could obsess about health and I'll probably have to for the rest of my life. Because if you don't and you follow the wrong advice, like you could die in your 20s, you right. become middle-aged and then <laughs> develop a disease in your 20s or even younger. So it's more important than most people realize. Well, and it's interesting for me, you know, as an MP, I worked in cardiology for 16 years. And prior to that, like your mom, I was an ER nurse, a proud ER nurse in inner city yeah. Baltimore, which mean, means I've seen it all and saw plenty of carbon monoxide poisoning there. But for me, it was so sad, you know, even as an NP in my early 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, early 40s, 
that I would have patients that were in their late 20s, early 30s, and I would beg them. I was like, listen, what I want you to do is I really need you to focus on, you know, your lifestyle piece, the sleep, the stress management, the smoking, although not as much smoking in Washington, D.C. I saw more of that in Baltimore. But for me, it was so profoundly sad that we have conditioned an entire culture of individuals that a pill is going to solve their problems as opposed to putting in some really, you know, some real effort to change their lifestyle. And for me, it was profoundly sad. It was profoundly transformational. It is, you know, so much of traditional Western medicine, we get little to no education about nutrition, which is why I went down the rabbit hole of doing a functional nutrition program. And that lit me up. That's when I knew I needed to kind of pivot my entrepreneurial journey quite profoundly because I was like, I'm tired of writing prescriptions. There's so much importance in the nutrition that we consume far more important than a lot of the other modalities that we're really pushing with our patients. So I applaud you for, you know, putting in that hard work and effort, but the irony is, you know, you had this fire. So it's almost like you have this physical transformation in your environment, much like what happened last year for for you and your family with uh, carbon monoxide poisoning, which is a powerful impetus for either propelling you forward or keeping you stuck. And you're not someone that gets stuck, which I think is fantastic. For better or worse. Yeah, you got to keep going. But you know, I have a lot of I'm not a parent myself, not yet, but I talk to a lot of people. And, and it's a similar thing where you can use your kids as an excuse mm-hmm. to not be healthy and let your life fall apart. Or they can be the excuse to really dial things in and make sure that you are on point and you are in shape and you mm-hmm. are spreading health to everyone else. Yeah. And really being an example, like I have all boys, you know, so I can appreciate what your mom went through raising all boys. So we have a very active boisterous household. And one of the things that my kids used to say all the time was in their mind, they never believed I was the age I was because I still took very good care of myself as does my husband. And when they met the average woman that was the same age I was, they stopped taking care of themselves. And so, so much of it is encouraging people, you want to be around for your grandchildren, you want to be around for your kids, you want to be able to, you know, chase your kids in your yard or be able to go to sporting events and have the ability to sit an entire day or be super active with your kids, because it's so critical. I think, you know, so much of it, I, I grew up in New Jersey, was born in South Carolina, but grew up in New Jersey. And we were raised so differently. You know, my mom was second generation American, but Italian. And so she made everything from scratch. And she made us eat organ meats. And we thought we were, we were super crunchy in the seventies and eighties comparatively, but I'm so grateful because my brother and I both developed a love and a passion for cooking. And, you know, my kids up until a few years ago, everything was made from scratch. Now being an entrepreneur, it's a little harder to do it all. Sometimes I have to pull my husband on board or actually buy things that are (laughs) pre-prepped. So for full admittance, you know, I'm a realist, but I think that's such a critical kind of you know, mindset shift for a lot of people, you know, you want to be healthy for those you love, you want to be around for those people that you love. So you made this incredible pivot, you found all this health and wellness. Now you are in a position where you're serving others, you and your wife are serving others. But how did you actually fall into having the podcast, writing a book? I mean, how did those things kind of evolve for you? I was working with when I was doing consulting, the top down, I was working with fortune 500s, the federal Mm -hmm. government, state government sometime. And I realized pretty quickly, (laughs) working with the Fortune 500s first, that they wouldn't let their own children touch their products. You know, whether it's a food company or even now tech companies, they're making products par for the course where they keep their kids away because they know how damaging 
these things are. And so anyway, I'm like, ooh, okay, this isn't really a good place to affect change or mm -hmm. to try to do good work or whatever. If I stay here too long, this will be a bad thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend my life this way. So <laughs> similar thing with the federal government. I worked with the Department of Education, the Library of Congress, and a few other organizations, and they didn't seem at all interested in education, certainly not educating people. And they didn't seem very interested in improving anything. And so I'm just like, okay, well, if we do want to do anything here in the real world and affects change, it seems to me that it has to come from the bottom up. It needs mm -hmm. to come from real work, from communities, not from just this top down ridiculous whatever they're doing with our tax dollars in any country, it's, it's usually not the best use of people's mm -hmm. time or money. So if you really want to do something, I realize you've got to do it yourself. And so I started pretty small. I've been a career musician. So like the DIY thing is built in to some mm -hmm. degree, but I started off really by doing blogging. This is in the late 2008, nine, and then early 2010s podcasting. Mm -hmm. I got into started up the fat burning man show is just an audio podcast, never thinking it would really go anywhere, you know, kind of a tongue in cheek name. And then from there, just more and more interviews, talking to many different people. And I'm always on the lookout for fun and interesting projects and collaborations with people. So it's, you know, and also not doing the work in consulting anymore and quitting my day job and then focusing on these other things. It's like, okay, what can we do here to actually keep the lights on, pay the bills and eventually pay a team. And so we've tried, I've been on a ABC TV show. I've done traditionally published books, independently published books, a bunch of independent apps that I ran as a business for a while. What am I forgetting? At least a half dozen different businesses. Now we have our own coaching and supplement line that kind of, we can make the coaching free now because mm -hmm. people are paying for the supplements. So we've, you know, really experimented with a variety of different ways of going about this. And we've tried to follow the ones that allow us to keep our independence mm -hmm. and our, you know, one thing that's really tricky these days is trying to be a business in the world of health without just being the arm of some supplement company or the marketing department guy for some other big, you know, company. It's hard to just be a person who's mm -hmm. saying whatever they want to say and making a living at this. So we've tried to experiment in different ways. And one of the things that I've realized too, is that no one is unbiased. You know, everyone is biased in their own way, but as long as you're transparent and honest with yourself and the people around you, you can make it work with a variety of different business models, mm -hmm. with a variety of different ways of going about it. But I'll say that almost every single great thing that we've ever done that I'm thankful for that's worked out well has been through collaboration, has mm -hmm. been through sharing, being generous with other people and that going back and forth on a cyclical basis with a lot of great people over the years. And so, you know, if anyone is interested out there who isn't in the world of health, you can dip your toes into it. You don't have to pay all your bills right away, but we need you more than ever. This is the time. It needs to be an army. I so agree with you. And what's been interesting to me is that as I've kind of pivoted as, you know, a traditionally Western medicine trained provider pivoting into the functional realm, how supportive my peers have been. You know, I was initially a little concerned that the cardiologists I work with thought I would have gotten full woo woo that I was no longer, you know, I had fallen off the wagon. I had gone right. completely woo woo. And what I found is they have actually turned out to be some of the biggest supporters because they recognize the system is so broken 
And we are doing a huge disservice to our patient population. Now, I want to be clear, obviously, there's a need and both you and I and your wife and your dog are a good example of there's a need for traditional Western medicine. I'm not saying that there isn't. But in terms of prevention, in terms of, you know, really looking at proactively, you know, getting in a position where we don't develop disease in the first place, you know, that's not a normal function of aging. You know, what unfortunately we've been spoon fed along with a lot of other dogma that you've already alluded to, whether it's breakfast is the most important meal a day or SECO, you know, the function that, you know, with age, we're going to start developing health problems. And there are certainly lots of individuals in my life, you know, personally and professionally that suggest otherwise. Now, one of the things that I think for so many of us in the health and wellness space right now is we're seeing more and more censorship. And so I know in particular, this is something that you are, you know, obviously speaking very openly about, and many of my listeners may not be as aware of what's going on, but, you know, whether it's on social media platforms or with Google we're starting to see see more and more of this. And I would say probably over the last two years. So would you feel comfortable speaking on this in particular? I think it's an important thing for people to understand that, you know, objectivity, you know, is something that we need in our lives. You know, we need to be able to see both sides, but when it's so slanted and biased, it doesn't allow us to make the right decisions for ourselves or our families. Yeah. And it's very disappointing once you know what's actually happening, but it's to your point, largely invisible from the people Mm -hmm. who aren't experiencing it firsthand. But a few examples of what would have happened, (laughs) not just to me, but many, many, many people who I consider leaders in the Mm -hmm. world of not just alternative health, but also health in general and Mm -hmm. and life in general, people with peer-reviewed studies who have been putting in the work, doing solid, trustworthy work for many, many decades have been buried. Mm -hmm. We've had our Wikipedia pages deleted that happened to me and a number of my peers without explanation, you know, our social media posts about certain subjects or Mm -hmm. using certain words removed. (laughs) We cannot use certain words. I cannot type them. My accounts have been frozen at various times. Sometimes you're attacked by just like these crazy rage bots or like people who are clearly paid Mm -hmm. trolls Trolls. to come after you. Social media to reach is decimated where people, Mm -hmm. if they're looking for you, can't find you. I had someone who has been a fan for years, who's got a quarter million followers herself, even just on Instagram, but down in Brazil, she thought that I had disappeared and gone away two years ago because she hasn't seen a single thing from me in two years, even though she follows me as a fan on all these different platforms. So when she found out that I had been putting out content Mm -hmm. this entire time, uh, she was mad enough to have me on her Instagram. We talked about it because censorship is happening, not just in America. It's happening in America, in China, in Brazil, in Europe, everywhere. And it's happening everywhere in almost exactly the same way. But there's no accountability and there's no transparency. And I was just speaking at a free speech conference about this this past week. And one of the things that came up is one of the head guys at the FBI was saying, and he's been a law enforcement officer mm-hmm. pretty much his entire career. Now he's retired. He says, if you post something on social media, it's there forever. It's there for everyone. And we're going to be watching as law enforcement. And wow. I said, okay, well, what about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google and YouTube who have been censoring us and mm-hmm. burying us with zero accountability, with zero transparency? If we're on the hook for everything we say, then they must legally be on the hook for every single thing 
that they bury or take away or make sure is never seen. Mm -hmm. So that's one side of this, though. And, you know, us being buried, we'll adapt. We'll find a way to reach our communities again, and they'll find our way their way back to us. But people need to know that this is what's happening. When you look something up on Google, when you get your news from Twitter, it's your news. It's not the news. It's specifically designed to manipulate you and the way that you feel your brain states. I studied brain science as an undergrad. And if I had gone on and gotten my doctorate and became an absolute rock star in that field, I would have been hired by Facebook and Google to manipulate you <laughs> with everything I know about brain science to control your behavior, to get you to buy shoes and vote for someone who you wouldn't have otherwise voted for or not vote or whatever. All of this is being done to you. So if you're looking up something on Dr. Google, or if you're getting your news from any of these places, keep in mind, you are being manipulated, not informed. Mm -hmm. And they are by keeping not just me, but all of these, you know, incredible doctors, philosophers, artists, thinkers, by burying all of these people who are leaders, who you need to be hearing from right now, more than ever, who in fact, you may be subscribed to following on all these different platforms, but you're still not hearing from any of them. This is really bad for you. This is really bad for us. It's really bad for all of us that this is happening. And as soon as there is some sort of platform and way for all of us to communicate that is more free, that is more, and not that we shouldn't be responsible for what we say, like that needs to be part of it, obviously. But as soon as, you know, we're not intercepted and manipulated by these platforms that promised to connect us, as soon as there's a platform that presents that alternative, it's going to come and eat their lunch. It's going to eat Facebook's lunch. They're going to go the way of MySpace. And I cannot wait for that day because people don't realize how much of our culture, even if it's just the latest diet fad, you know, keto carnivore really took off because those keywords are cheap. So marketers yeah. can use them more on you and just slap those terms, whether it's vegan, paleo, carnivore, whatever, they cycle in and out. But this is being... <laughs> all run by marketers who have no idea what's going on in the world of health. And that's really what's driving our culture and our entire world of information now. And that's a big problem. It is a huge problem. And, you know, I was using it as an example. So I have two teenagers and my son was on my iPad, my iPhone. And he said, oh, you search on DuckDuckGo. And I said, yes. And he said, why do you do that? So it opened up this incredible opportunity to talk to him about how biased Google is, as one example. And I said, plus they track your information. So, you know, if you're wondering why you suddenly in your Gmail, you then get ads for something you had been searching for on, on Google, there's very little transparency. I have one friend who now uses ProtonMail because she said it's the only secure email that exists. And I'm sure there's other secure platforms. I'm just not as familiarized with them. And, you know, my first degree was in international studies. So, you know, I was in college. This is going to date me back when the Berlin Wall came down. But for me, reading the newspaper, and this is the newspaper, not the internet, I had to get up and get the Washington Post before school every day for classes. I loved and loved, you know, learning about what's going on in the world. You know, I just, I would digest the entire newspaper. And nowadays we don't even turn the news on. I mean, I tell my kids all the time that, Everything is so biased now, even within the United States and, and even abroad. I mean, sometimes I'll watch the BBC, but you know, even then there's a lack of transparency. And so what are some of the things you're recommending to your listeners or to your clients to help them through this process about 
getting good, reliable information, if that's even possible, or also protecting yourself so that you are, you know, just a bit more aware, you know, whether it's changing an email service platform, changing your search engine, what are some of the things that we can be doing? Well, we have a tendency as humans to think that. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. I have finally found the cleanest and best tasting protein powder. It's called Clean Simple Eats. And for me personally, I am absolutely dairy sensitive and I have been able to successfully try their protein powder with no digestive distress. I love this protein powder because it is exactly what it states. It's clean and simple. It's always grass fed with no seed oils, no junky sugary ingredients, no artificial ingredients. And it is also third party tested, non-GMO and gluten-free. I think all of you know these things are very important to me. We know that protein is one of the most important macronutrients. And for many people that are intermittent fasting, they struggle getting in enough protein in their feeding window. And each serving has 20 grams of protein, making it a perfect addition to breaking your fast or using it during the course of your feeding window. They actually have 26 delicious all-natural flavors. Personally, I like the chocolate brownie batter, but they have chocolate mint, they've got cookie dough, and they have a delicious Simply Vanilla, which you can mix with just about anything. My entire family, especially my teenagers, really like the powders, and they also enjoy the clean Simple Eats Clear Protein Drinks, which are also clean and have 20 grams of grass-fed protein each. So if you want to try this new protein powder out, I promise you will not be disappointed. You want to go to www.cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 for 20% off your first order. If you try it out, let me know what your favorite flavor is. Things that are new are better but they're not. 
we tend to want, and myself included, we want new information. We don't want something that's already known. Mm -hmm. Even if it's something that totally works, <laughs> it's so fascinating to me because people will endlessly spend hundreds, thousands of dollars, dedicate hours or days or years of their lives to all of these rabbit holes looking for that magical pill that solves mm -hmm. everything. When in fact, like they could just go out in the sun and like maybe take some vitamin D, which everyone knows about, or some vitamin C every once in a while, right? Mm -hmm. Like these are really boring things that have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that they don't work. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be looking for the newfangled thing that like supposedly works and does everything better. Mm -hmm. We need to look at the things that have always worked and then rely on them. So when I was writing my book, you know, The Wild Diet, about five, six years ago now, I was reading books that were 100 years old because they were having the same conversations about how to treat di better ones. They treated diabetics more, way more appropriately oh. 100 years ago than they do now. Yeah, but they were talking about low carb. I mean, even exactly. back then. They just had different names for it. They had yeah. different keywords. So mm -hmm. banting was a giant one in the, in the late 1800s, low carb. And they knew to a large degree why it worked. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like 100 years later or 150 years or whatever we know that much more. We kind of do, but we don't need to know all this new stuff. You don't need to Google it. You can find all of this in, in these legendary books that have been around forever. Physical education. I looked into the you know history of that. It's all fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would say go back and get books because even those are being censored, yeah. right? Like one of the things I've done in the past couple of years, because I saw this happening, we've been censored for many years now. It's just gotten way worse. So we have probably well over a thousand books mm -hmm. and um they don't become less relevant they become more relevant in a lot of cases and the research that's out there it only matters if it's more reliable and it's mm -hmm. less reliable now it's more biased than ever is what it seems like maybe that's not true certainly seems that way so not that you ignore everything new out there but before you go and search for all the new stuff make sure that you're really solid on the old stuff mm -hmm. that's true and just you know talking about training you could read every new book and every new study about how your muscles work and mTOR and, you know, like what exercises are best and the duration and endurance or blah, 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 blah. Or you could just like do deadlifts once a week and like go walking most of the time and swing a kettlebell sometimes and just like be fit for your whole life pretty yeah. much because yeah. it works. You know, it's basically it's not fancy. You just kind of have to do some of these things like eating your vegetables or fasting. You mm -hmm. don't have to keep reading about it. You don't need more fasting studies. If you treat yourself as that N equals one, if you're willing to anyway, experiment and try different things, that's where the real education comes. I mean, it, if you're trying to get anything from social media, it shouldn't be news. The only thing I see social media for really is a messaging app between two people. And as soon as you can get it off of there, as soon as you can make that connection and talk somewhere else, do that. And you can learn from other people too, but you cannot learn from other people on social media the way that it exists anymore. It's just an echo chamber or it's a place where people fight without ever doing any research, without even looking at what the other person is talking about in a lot of cases. Like I was copied on a Twitter, maybe you saw some of this. I was copied on a Twitter post yesterday where there was a book about Leonardo that came out, but they, you know, 
the person who was attacking the person who wrote the book about Leonardo didn't even look into which Leonardo it was. And so he's just attacking him because right. he thought it was Da Vinci, but it wasn't. And it's just, and it goes on all day. These people are going back and forth and they're not even fighting about anything that they right. can agree on. Right. And so don't try to educate yourself there. You can waste your time there, you know, like go and hang out if you want, but understand it for what it is. And if you really want to learn, then you've got to like, Put on your nerd glasses and do some reading, I think. Well, I'm a total nerd. We're a bunch of nerds in Me my too. house. I've got a glasses have... collection right here. Yeah. <laughs> I have at any given time four or five physical books, multiple things on Audible. I tell my kids all the time, I am never bored. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I will always keep myself in a learning mode. But yeah. so many good points that you bring in there, you know, going back to basics, going back to, you know, things, the way that people lived a hundred years ago or longer, and it's a nice pivot to kind of talk about one of my favorite topics, which I know is also one of yours. You know, intermittent fasting is not new or novel, but yet the marketers want to make it that way. Yeah. And this is the way our bodies are designed to thrive. This is the way our bodies are designed to best, you know, age. There are so many levels. And, and like you mentioned, we don't need more studies. And I could say that, you know, I could just put a million exclamation marks behind what you said. You know, so badly people want to disprove science and they want yeah. to disprove things that clearly it's not just an N of one, it's an N of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So how did you kind of get interested in intermittent fasting as a philosophy, as a strategy? When did that happen for you? I've been doing it for about 10 years or so intentionally. Mm -hmm. Unintentionally, I'd been doing it before that, but I just never really thought about it that mm -hmm. way. And then, you know, for me, most of my athletic pursuits have been in the world of running and endurance mm -hmm. events. And when I was running marathons, especially when you're doing endurance events, you have to learn about your glycogen mm -hmm. stores. You have to learn about proper fueling to some degree mm -hmm. and recovery. And you have to learn about your immune system because if mm -hmm. you don't, you're going to get slammed and you're never going to be able to compete. So it was it really through I was transitioning at the time from running marathons to shorter distances, mm -hmm. like 10 Ks and started doing more sprint based work. And so I was really curious about like what my caloric needs mm -hmm. would be as I made that change and what my hunger would look like and all of that. So when I really started going for less of the, like I was down to 148 pounds when I was running marathons. And wow. normally I'm around like 180 or wow. like 170. So like that was really small. And I was on purpose, like trying not to have muscle. <laughs> and I wanted to know if I could build muscle or protect muscle as I made the transition to fasting, because everyone thinks your muscles going to fall off and you're going to mm -hmm. waste away in the same way that like, if you're a woman, they think you're going to turn into the Terminator. If you lift yeah. weights or something, yeah. it's just, nope. it's not like, like not physiologically way. possible. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I kind of made the switch to doing more sprints and explosive type workouts and lifting heavy weights and seeing if I could put on muscle while I was eating less and mm -hmm. while I was eating less often, certainly. Mm -hmm. and so I was eating less and I was eating less often. And yes, I was able to like put on quite a bit of mass pretty quickly, mm -hmm. partially due to muscle memory, right? Yeah. Partially due to because I had been at that weight before and that size mm -hmm. before or whatever. But I was so shocked by how well my body responded. I felt mm -hmm. like I was always kind of like puffy, even if I was skinny, mm -hmm. you know, running marathons and fueling more with sugar and, and worrying more about filling up the glycogen to 
being more fat based and being able to run on fat, which I see very similar to intermittent fasting. And that's another whole thing where a lot of people are just like keto, keto, keto. And for me, there's like fat burning man, you must be really into all these keto things, right? And it's like, not really, because I see ketosis, you know, mm -hmm. like fat burning, all of this as a natural state of the body when we're underfed, when we're not eating, when our body is running around doing repair work, because it's mm -hmm. not getting this, you know, just constant influx of good and bad nutrients that it has to deal with. So giving your body a break seems like a very natural thing to do. And that's kind of what how I went into it by pushing back breakfast to around like 10, then 11, then 12. Mm -hmm. So I was doing about a 16, eight type mm -hmm. fast at the beginning. I liked it so much that I didn't really stop. Breakfast never came back for me after I did that with a few exceptions, you know, like, it's not like I'll never eat breakfast, but you know, my normal life, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> like it really is more of a social type thing. Or, you know, if we have a giant physical hike or something that we're doing later in the day, I don't mind eating earlier in the day. It's more important to focus on that time of not eating the eating mm -hmm. window and then the not eating experience, which is just wonderful. You know, like the longer that I've done it now, it's been seven or eight years and I do pretty much one meal a day or one and a half where I'll start eating around 3 p.m. Sometimes like yesterday, it was 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. and I was recording all day. And that also gives you a little bit of a superpower too. If you don't have to be sucking on goo packs and chugging Gatorade when you're out running and all that, if you can start exercising fasted, yep. then the benefits there, not necessarily for performance, but from a physiological point of view mm -hmm. and a longevity point of view, really start to stack on each other such that now, I do pretty much all of my training fasted and I feel a lot better doing so. And if I want to focus on performance, then you can eat beforehand or have a little bit of sugar and then you just feel like rocket man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's a whole different world. And so it's fun to have these, I think of them as different gears. Yep. No. And I think it's important, you know, irrespective of what someone's ultimate goals are, you know, I predominantly work with women. And so the focus always seems to start with weight loss. And so obviously intermittent fasting can be helpful, but I think what keeps people using the strategies, they feel so great, you know, when yeah. insulin levels are low. And like you mentioned, you had a whole day of taping much to your point. I mean, I love being super productive in the morning and I'm like, I can get through. That's usually when, you know, the term of eat the frog, I try to get through yes. the three things I'm avoiding doing the most. If, if anyone's listening, it's a great book, really easy book. You can probably read it awesome. in a day, but the salient points are that you tackle the three things you don't want to do the most, get them out of the way. Cause then you feel like the rest of your day, you're a total rock star. Now I know for me, I've been doing intermittent fasting for about five years and in my typical kind of you know, I'm not a pessimist by any stretch of the imagination, but I kept saying, gosh, that, you know, this is completely the antithesis of what we've been telling our patients. Yeah. And yet now I feel like for every single person who's listening with very few exceptions, it's the way we're designed to work. We're not designed of mini meals and snacks and goo packs. Like you mentioned, yeah. really that should be, you know, the emergency backup system is all this glycogen in our bodies, which is such a much more efficient way to fuel our bodies. Now, I want to pivot one last time. I want to be respectful of your time. But like we both mentioned, we both love to read. What are you reading right now? What are the books you're interested in? What are you diving into right now? What are you doing research on? That's so interesting. I'm actually reading a lot into symbolism, symbology, mm -hmm. the meaning of words, the history of what words mean, because words have been weaponized more than ever. Mm -hmm. 
especially now, and terminology is being used incorrectly mm -hmm. and inaccurately by the media, by scientists, mm -hmm. by many people. So mm -hmm. being really clear on what words mean, what they're supposed to mean, and the rest of it has been interesting. But also from kind of a historical standpoint, we live out an area of Colorado, South Central Colorado, that's very rural. We're four mm -hmm. hours from the airport or and a real airport. And we live in an area that where the trees were manipulated by the native tribes to basically create orchards or to indicate to point to where water is mm -hmm. and, and all these different things. And so trying to learn the language of the land to some mm -hmm. degree, trying to learn the plants is another oh. thing that we're constantly reading about. And then for me, I tend not to, it's funny because I get that question a lot. It's like, what are you reading right now? Mm -hmm. And when I'm reading, it's like, I'm reading it that day and then I'm usually done or whatever. <laughs> or it's like, it's before an interview and I've got this stack mm -hmm. of books and I'm just like, bang, you know, just going mm -hmm. right through it. I tend not to just kick back and read a book over a long period mm -hmm. of time. Although I do do that sometimes, but it's one of the most important habits mm -hmm. that I have and that most people who are growth oriented keep their entire lives you don't want to let that go away and then another one i'll add to that that i think is so important especially now is you want to be a creator more than a consumer in whatever way you can so if there's just a little notebook that you can write on you mm -hmm. know that you can fill up with whatever but you start at nothing and then mm -hmm. you fill it up with something and you make that a habit too that will pay off big time for mental health you'll mm -hmm. start writing things creating things that you never would have Otherwise, if you had just been in that kind of consuming things mode. So I think that's even because a lot of people, they don't take to reading in the same way that bookworms like us do. So mm -hmm. I think it's important to also really experiment with the other offline old school mm -hmm. ways of doing things without any technology, because I think it was my, a sixth or seventh grade class. I remember one of the teachers made us just like take notes and write everything down ourselves because she's like, if you write it down, then you'll remember it better. Yeah. And then I went to school and studied brain science. And mm -hmm. if you write it down, you'll remember it better. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. true. And when you engage all of these different senses, especially taking it offline, it's just a better way to learn and grow. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, I'm in the midst of, I'm hoping it'll be my third draft of my book proposal. And so for me, I have to, and again, I go back to old school, like when I was at Hopkins and I would be in the stacks and I would have this massive backpack because, you know, all these primary sources were in these massive binders and you'd be carrying things down and like trying to explain to my family that I have to print stuff out because I have to read it take notes. And then if I need to put something in a document, that's totally old school, but that's the way that I remember. That's how I organize things. I agree with you. If you ask my, if I took a picture of my study with the O'Hara, but we're in the midst of a move, I have notepads everywhere because I'm constantly writing things down. And I think for so much of us, we, many of us, there are periods in our lives where we're on autopilot. I know when my kids were younger, you know, when I was, I had a very demanding job working at cardiology, I come home and I was like on a brain dump. I just couldn't think I'd get my kids to bed and I might watch, oh, the horror, I'm going to admit I watched like Real Housewives, but it was because it was mindless. Right, but, right. you know, I graduated, there were a couple years of that. And that was as much as I could absorb. And then I was back to my kind of normal pattern, which is, I'm usually listening to something on audible. If I'm taking a walk outside, I've got books on my desk, there's usually four or five, at least And my kids know they're all in a state of, I'm partially reading for specific things that are going yeah. to add content to, you know, things that I'm doing within my business or adding to the podcast, or I'm like, Oh, I want to interview that person. 
So I agree with you that it's not just the reading, it's applying. It's if you're going to take the time to read something, ensure that you you have a message or something beneficial that's going to come out of it. And yeah. being a lifelong learner, I tell my kids, they think, oh, I'm going to finish college and there'll be no more school. And I said, no, 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 you are a lifelong learner. I will learn until I die. In fact, when I stop learning, it's probably time to die, which yeah. I hope is many years away. But the point being, we want to evolve, shift and change. We want to inspire others. We want to serve others. And the only way to do that is to improve ourselves. So, yeah, I 100% agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. I'd love to have you back. Like I said, there are so many different things we could have talked about, but thank you for being open to connecting. I know my listeners will find this discussion really valuable. Thanks for having me and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.